All right, thank you. So I would like to start this new year right. This morning I would like us to just let all the noise of Christianity fade away for a moment, by which I mean all of the board meetings and politics and strife and et cetera, all these things that come along so often in our walk with God and the relationship with our church. And let's just kind of ignore those things for right now and focus on the most basic reason why we are here, which is to praise the name of the Lord. And that's what I would like us to do this morning. This is our primary job as Christians, to praise God and teach the world how to praise with us. We are not in charge of salvation or judgment, regardless of what some among us may think or behave, you know, sometimes. We are not in charge of that. Rather, our job is to simply proclaim about he who is in charge of salvation and judgment, who is, of course, Jesus Christ. So our scripture passage today, thank you so much for that wonderful reading of the scripture. That was great. That was the entirety of Isaiah chapter 12. It was the whole chapter. It's only six verses long. I want to kind of explore it this morning because it is a proclamation of praise, but also I believe it has some lessons in it for us. So let's begin to dissect it. It begins in verse 1 with a reference to prophecy. It says, in that day you will say. That's how it begins. In that day, you may already know this, but when you see that phrase or any like it, like in those days, on that day, any, any version of that, it's kind of like a Bible shortcut, and it's always referring to the end of time. Even if sometimes in the immediate context, there is a more immediate historical fulfillment, nonetheless, it's telling you the ultimate universal fulfillment is going to be at the close of history. So it's bringing our minds there. And prophecy is of special importance to me personally. I like learning it. I like teaching it. I like talking about it. It is the single biggest reason why I joined this church in the first place. The man who taught me the Bible realized that I was an anxious, nervous wreck, and he thought maybe if this man knew prophecy, he'd calm down a little bit. And, and, uh, and that's what happened. So here I am. <laughs> Honestly, I believe in my heart that the general apathy about the return of Jesus that is so common among so many churchgoers, even in the Adventist church, ultimately comes from incomplete knowledge of these prophecies. Because if we really understood it, how could we be quiet about it? It's supposed to get in our hearts and transform us. So if you find yourself as, you know, identifying with this idea that you don't understand it well enough or appreciate it well enough, then here is a shameless self-plug for you. We are exploring the book of Daniel on our Wednesday night prayer meetings. Not right now because of the 10 days of prayer, but we will resume at the last Wednesday of January. I believe the date is the 25th. And so if you need to know the book of Daniel better or prophecy better in general, please come and join us at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays, beginning again at the end of this month. We are exploring it in depth. I do mean in depth. 
We're exploring it from many different perspectives, like uh, the literary structure, the original language, the historical context. We're exploring a lot about Daniel as a real-life person and what his experiences would have been. And of course, you know all then the normal stuff that we usually study in the book of Daniel too. So it's going to be um, a lot to learn. We're currently looking at chapter 2. We're going to be studying for many, many more months. So please join us. But anyway, back to the message at hand. God knows that prophecy is important. Jesus tells us in John 14.29, I believe, he says, Behold, I have told you ahead of time so that when it comes to pass, you will believe, right? Prophecy is the whole basis for belief. It's the evidence for belief. And God knows this. And so he begins, Isaiah 12, this burst of praise to God by calling our attention prophetically to the end of time. The rest of verse 1 says, In that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. See, the Lord was angry with us, but now he's not angry with us. Why not, friends? Because of Jesus, that's right. Did we, in fact, work to erase our sins and achieve a better standing with God? Of course not. The wages of sin is death, right? The wages of sin is not a second chance to work off the death sentence. The wages of sin is death. So the wrath of God toward us is satisfied by Jesus Christ on the cross. So because of Christ's sacrifice, God's anger is turned away. And now he brings us comfort instead of wrath. Now remember, this is in that day, right? At Christ's return. So while it's true that Christ's atonement turns away God's wrath from us in a general ongoing sense even now, the wrath discussed here in Isaiah 12 is the reward of the wicked, right? The seven final plagues and the brightness of the coming of Jesus Christ when wickedness meets its final reward or penultimate reward, I guess. You get a final reward a thousand years later. But this is the end of the greatest cosmic controversy of all time, culminating in the return of Jesus Christ. The sanctuary is closed at this point. Mercy is withdrawn at this point, And God's full wrath without mixture, as it says in Revelation, is now unleashed. And we're not a part of it. Isn't that good news? In that moment that we're talking about in Isaiah 12 here, we will have the temporal safety and comfort from the dangers that we faced on the earth all through the time of trouble. But also we will have the eternal comfort of knowing that we did not suffer the eternal consequence of our own sin. That we inherited what rightfully belonged to Jesus because Jesus inherited what rightfully belonged to us, which was the shame and the death. And so now in that moment, with our lives ransomed from death by the blood of the Lamb, we are free to live in that eternal paradise, that eternal life that Christ promised us. 
And as we enter the gates of heaven in that day, we proclaim, though I belong in that group down there with all of the death, praise the Lord, I'm in the group up here entering into eternal life. That is praise. That is praise. Isaiah continues, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. He says here, Behold, watch with your eyes that God is my salvation. That it is not me. It is not my works. It is not what I have done. It's not my merits or my words or anything about me that got me here, but it is God and God alone that got me here. Therefore, I will trust him and not be afraid. Why would God ever do anything to harm the people that he purchased with his own blood? Let me ask you, church. How well do you trust God? That's probably a deeper question than we often give thought to. We may trust that when he says do not commit adultery, that it's the right thing to do not to break up our marriage with adultery. We may even trust him speaking through Sister White when she tells us that eating vegetables is better than eating meat. We may trust that what he says is correct, but how, how much do we trust God? to do things for us. It's kind of easy to trust God to make the sunrise every day. Is it as easy to trust God to fix my marriage? How much do we trust God? That's actually going to be the subject of my mini-sermon on the 21st at Convocation. So if that interests you, then make sure to come to church on the 21st. <laughs> Do we believe in the Lord enough to trust him like he asks us to? Well, in that day, you will know what it is to fully trust, to fully depend on the Lord as we are literally flying through space with a brand new body that functions differently from the bodies we have now, entering into the beautiful gates of heaven through walls that are 200 feet thick and transparent. That is something that we will have to trust God to do. And we will trust him in that day. And I pray that we might have a taste of that trust for the Lord even now, even today. So the verse continues and says, Yah is my strength and song and has become my salvation. That's a strange saying. And actually, you don't even find it in every single Bible translation. The original King James says, Jehovah, the Lord. The NIV doesn't say this either. Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. Well, the Hebrew word there, if you go back to the original language, is Yah. It's essentially the same thing. Yah, like Y-A-W, Yah. It's a contracted version of the proper name, Yahweh. And it's used primarily, it's used a few times in the Old Testament, primarily in the book of Psalms, also here in Isaiah, and twice in the book of Exodus. In every single place where it shows up, it is used to praise the Lord. It is a name of praise. 
It's almost like a nickname for God. Yah, Yah, it's a nickname. It's just as sacred as his full name, but it's used only by his friends as they acknowledge his glory and greatness. Yah, my friend, the Almighty God, has become my salvation. Can you address God as Yah? Do you know him well enough? Do you know him well enough and trust him enough to use his familiar name reserved only for his friends? Verse 3. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This verse is actually God now acknowledging, not acknowledging, but drawing a conclusion about our praise. Changes perspective, right? This is God saying, therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Therefore, because of our praising, we will have joy in salvation. You ever meet a Christian who doesn't seem terribly joyful that he or she is saved? You ever meet a Christian whose countenance is way down here, more interested in making you feel just as bad as they do than bringing you up and filling you up with joy? How about we praise the Lord more because therefore we will find joy in salvation if we praise the Lord. Because our hearts long to sing because we know that salvation is ours based on nothing we've done but only because of Jesus. Because we call our Father Yah, our friend, therefore we have joy in our salvation. Verse 4, and in that day, there's that phrase again, you will say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples, make mention that his name is exalted. So this is us again. In that day, we will declare his amazing works, even as we live through them. We will declare the goodness of God to each other, to the angels, to anyone who will stop and listen. We will desire God's name to be glorified so much that we will want to hear it from each other even as we proclaim it ourselves. Verse 5. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Is the excellence of God known in all the earth right now? I wish it was, but it's not. The excellence of God will be known in all of the new earth in that day. The earth made new, recreated in God's image. Throughout eternity, in the new Jerusalem and beyond, our story of salvation will never be quieted, never be silenced, Never be tired of by anyone. And finally, in verse 6, Isaiah's conclusion. Cry out and shout, O inhabitants of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. In our midst. What does that mean? That means 
the perfect God of holiness who is so pure that he cannot show his full face even to the mightiest of his servants, Moses. That perfect God of holiness stands unveiled in our very midst as if he was right here in this room. The source of everything, the personification of life and love and salvation is my neighbor down the street. No more searching after God in that day. You want to ask God a question? Go knock on his door. Is that good news? <laughs> Are you feeling good today, church? You ready to say hallelujah to the Lord today? <laughs> Have your spirits been lifted by coming to church today? Do you realize all we have done is proclaim the good news of the Lord's salvation? That's all we've done. We spend a whole lot of time doing and saying lots and lots of other things. And yet the simple proclamation of the gospel is enough to lift a person up and set his or her heart on God. We're experiencing that today. So why don't we do that more often? You think we should? Hmm. Why do we spend so much time on so many other things? Now, I'm sure there's a plethora of reasons, but I'm going to suggest one to you, my brothers and sisters. Perhaps the reason that we do not proclaim our salvation more, that we do not make known what he has done more, is because maybe we do not fully enough understand what it is that he has done. Maybe we don't really get what salvation's all about. Many of us pay lip service to our Christianity, and many of us really even mean it. But at the same time, we cling to our own views of our own lives. My plan. My goals. My outlook. And we have yet to surrender that to Jesus and ask for his goals and etc. But we have to surrender all to Jesus because surrender to the will of God is how the universe stays together. That's what eternity is going to be like. Eternity will be populated 100% by people fully surrendered to God. No exceptions. Think about if there were exceptions. Someone who is not connected to God. Because we can see that here. When we disconnect from the will of God, when we follow our own paths, our paths inevitably clash with each other and we sin. That's what we do here, all the time, around the world, even when we don't intend to, just by following me instead of him. But there is no sin in heaven, amen? And so that kind of bumping into each other can't exist in heaven. Everyone is perfectly surrendered to God in heaven each and every single moment, and as such, we will not bump heads with one another ever. You will not feel anger 
again. You will never lust again. You will never dishonor another person or be dishonored by one. You will never steal nor be robbed. You will never lie nor be lied to. You will forever be satisfied with the purpose and the situation that God gave you because your will is perfectly surrendered to his will. Just try to wrap your mind around all of that. It's so foreign because it doesn't exist here. But that's what's in store for us. And Sister White actually puts it beautifully. Review and Herald, July 14, 1910. This is one of her closing thoughts. She died just a few years later. She said, all true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. Isn't that beautiful? It won't even feel like obedience in that day. The desires of our hearts will have been so perfectly refined and so perfectly fulfilled that simply following the impulses of our recreated hearts will be obedient to God's perfect will. That's what we have to look forward to, saints. That's what we have to be thankful for, saints. One day, and you know I believe it's soon, one day soon, God will come and he will give us a purpose in life that is so in tune with the desires of our recreated hearts that we will always bring glory to God's name simply by living out our everyday lives. Oh, hallelujah. But we're not quite there yet, are we? Would you like to be there? Would you like to end the day in heaven? So would I. But God has given us a job to do first. The one and only. In the Bible, you find a whole lot of like prophetic events, especially if you study Daniel and Revelation, right? All sorts of things have to happen first. But there is one and only one prophetic sign of the times, so to speak, that is specifically tied to Christ's return, where Christ says, this will happen, and then I'll come. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Not and then Babylon will rise, right? Once this happens, Jesus will come. So Jesus says, your job is to evangelize. Go tell somebody. Go make known what he has done to someone who doesn't already know. And I believe that the reason God wants us to do this work has very little to do with warning the world. Why do I believe that? Well, it's because he could do that himself if he chose. 
He could absolutely park himself on top of Mount Sinai and with the help of the internet, every single person in the world would know exactly what God was saying at the moment that he said it. The very rocks would cry out. That's Jesus' promise, right? God is not dependent upon us. Rather, I believe that the reason he calls us to do this work is to save ourselves. To work out our own salvation, if you will, to borrow a phrase from the Bible. Think about it. Evangelism is all about making known what God has done and watching God take action in partnership with us to make known to others what he has done. It is perpetually proclaiming the joy of our salvation. And just a little quick testimony here. I believe because I've been on, on the ground doing the footwork of evangelism for a number of years, I've, I believe that we see God work in a way that he does not work otherwise when we are out there making known what he has done. I have seen God hold the rain in rainy weather at least three different times. The first time, the first time was when we were giving out literature in Sacramento. It was pouring rain. It was coming down in two directions, straight down and on an angle. We were with a group. We all gathered around to pray that God would stop that rain, and I will confess to you that I didn't believe that was going to happen. I was the doubter in the group, but I praise God that others in the group were more faithful than me because that pouring down rain in two directions ceased very quickly. As soon as we were done praying, it was just dribbling, dribbling, and by the time we got in our cars, it had ceased. We went out to the streets of Sacramento. We were giving out books. Took, I don't know, an hour, two hours, however long we were out there. I was the last one with books. Everyone else was done. But me and my partner still had two or three books. So we're out there finding someone to take them. We finally got them into somebody's hands. We were walking back to the meeting place. And as we were traveling from giving out that last book to meet everybody else, it started raining again. God held the rain exactly long enough to get the word out there. Second time was when we were doing a mission trip in uh, Brazil. We were there for two weeks. It rained every single day that we were there. It did not rain on us even once. Not once. Think about that. Every single day the rain came just, just so happens, never when we happened to be outside spreading the word. Third time was just a few weeks ago. Remember that big rainstorm that we got on uh, Friday before the second weekend of Walk Through Bethlehem? Remember that? I spent the week before that praying myself, asking my family, asking the churches, asking even the kids at BAA. I said, pray with me that God will send the rain because we need it, just not right here. Not right here on this campus. Do you remember what happened? About five minutes before we opened the door to the public, that massive rain quit. <laughs> God works in a way that he does not work otherwise when we are actively trying to tell other people about him. We experience him in a different way when we do that. And, and by experiencing him in those ways, we come to understand him, we come to understand ourselves in him. Perhaps we work out our own salvation. Well, think about it this way. You know all those things that drive you crazy about the people at church? Whatever they may be, we all have our own reasons. There's a standard list. It usually includes like the judgmental attitudes and 
the veiled or sometimes even overt legalism, the lack of love, lack of attention perhaps, the politics, the gossip. I mean, these are the things that are complained about most often. You may have other things on your list as well. But have you realized that none of those things would ever happen if everyone was busy making known what God has done? If we were more interested in telling other people about God than telling other people about each other, all the strife would cease. Would any of you have any time at all to criticize a brother or a sister or to gossip or to play politics if you were busy studying with four people every day? Or, you know, that's just a number I picked. But if you were busy doing this every day, if you were busy handing out literature, if you were busy executing a ministry at church or in the community somewhere, no. Evangelism is the cure to all ailments of the church. All of the things that drive us nuts about church and about each other would not exist if we were doing what Christ called us to do. The very existence of discord within the church is evidence that we are not doing what Christ called us to do. At least not as a whole group. There may be individuals who are doing it, but not as a whole group. And so Jesus tells us to tell the world what he has done. It's not even a suggestion. It's a command, as we read in Matthew 28. These famous verses at the end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. This tells us because Jesus is all-powerful, because he has all of the authority, therefore we evangelize. You see that, right? Am I being fair with this text? I'm not sure what to do with that silence. Am I being fair with the text? <laughs> okay. All right. If we truly believe that Christ is who he says he is, the omnipotent creator of all things for whom nothing is too hard or impossible, then the logical response is to go tell someone else that he is all those things as well. That's what this is telling us. If we believe he is God, then let's go tell someone that he is God. And there's a really awesome consequence of doing this as well that we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. It says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. You want to hasten the coming of the day of God? Through our faithful preaching and witnessing, the Bible says we can, in fact, hasten the day of the Lord. We can do our part. We can help to finish the work. Now, I don't know how much longer you want to stay in this land of ISIS and Zika virus and cancer and beheadings and militarized police and racial tensions and civil war and excruciating elections. Have mercy. If we can go to heaven before the next time we have to elect a president, I will be a happy man. 
right? And all the government oppression and the persecution and all the rest of the things that lead to the only inevitability in this world, which is death. I don't know how much longer you want all those things, but I don't want to spend a single minute longer than necessary here. I've got two young girls who I do not want the world to gobble up. So let's do what Jesus tells us to do. Amen? Let's make known to the world what he has done. And that work starts right here in Bakersfield. It starts right here with us. It's not someone else's job. Amen? It's our job. Can we make 2017 a year of evangelism? Oh, I like that enthusiasm, but it only came from one corner of the room. Can we make 2017 a year of evangelism, church? I hope so. Prayerfully and by God's grace. Here's a challenge. Can each one of us bring someone else to Christ this year? You know how much we struggle over church growth? If every one of us brought someone to Christ, there'd be twice as many people here in a year as there are right now. It's the easiest solution in the world to to church growth. At a minimum, if that seems too hard, at a minimum, can we support the church's efforts to reach the world through our faithful financial giving and support of the new evangelism budget? Some of us are not given the gift of preaching or teaching, but all of us have money. And there is plenty of money. This church has plenty of money to do every single evangelistic outreach that we want to. It's just all the money's in your pockets right now. <laughs> How about the best of both worlds is doing all of the above? Let's, let's support the budget and go out and tell somebody about Jesus. Amen? So here's my appeal, my one and only appeal to you today. If you want the Lord to use you this year to build up his kingdom and hasten his return, please lift your voices high to heaven with me and tell God, Amen. Hallelujah. Oh, friends, I am so, so, so grateful to God to know you. It is my privilege and my honor to serve at this church, and I'm so grateful for every single one of you. Let us work together to make known what God has done in this community and to prepare the world around us for the soon return of Jesus Christ. I pray that in the process of getting the people out there ready, we might become ready ourselves. Jesus Christ is coming again soon. Let's go tell somebody about it. Amen? God bless you all. Let us stand together as we sing our closing song, and then we will have a word of prayer to, uh, to round it all out. <clears throat> I don't know the it's hymn number. hymn number 341. To God be the glory. Hymn number 341.